welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name's Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, for coming back. First-time listeners always try to extend a warm welcome to all of you guys. Uh, regular listeners, I really appreciate it. Gotten some feedback recently. I think I got back to people, got back to everybody, everybody that I could. But uh, if you have tried to reach me and you haven't gotten me, please do send another email or get me on Facebook, Twitter, whatever you want to do. Um, of course, I always, I always encourage that, not simply for the interactive nature of it, but I do think of Counterpunch as a project that is in some senses collaborative. It's a space that we do have online where we can air out our issues, where we can provide critical perspectives, where we can debate, where we can discuss in the form of articles, in the form of this podcast, in, in any other way, online, social media, and so forth. And I think that Counterpunch is really important in that regard, especially given everything that's going on. And I know I've said that pretty much every episode, but I think it's true. So if you agree with that, please consider getting a subscription to the print magazine. Yes, Counterpunch is a freaking dinosaur and it's still printing on paper and it's great and I love that. So please consider getting that subscription. It's a great way to support Counterpunch to keep this whole thing going. Of course, the website is updated every single day with tons of new content. And of course, you can also uh, give a donation via PayPal or any of the other ways that people do such things. So uh, any way that you can support it, it's always appreciated. And of course, if you want to get more of my work, you can go to my other, uh, I guess you could call it my other hub, my other platform on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Eric Dreitzer. Lots more podcasts and essays and articles and photos and other things there. So please do that as well. Anyway, I want to turn to my guest today. I'm super excited to have him on the show. Um, I've been following his work for a long time. I'm a big fan of it, and uh, I know that a lot of you guys are as well. It's Barrett Brown. He's here to talk about a number of issues, but who is Barrett Brown? He is a journalist, most importantly, the founder of the Pursuance Project. You can go to the website pursuanceproject.org. We're going to be talking a lot about that and a bunch of other stuff. You can follow him on Twitter at Barrett Brown underscore. Uh, Out of the way, Barrett Brown, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming on and thank you for all of the work that you do. Um, so before we get into that, before we get into pursuance and uh, some of the other things that we're going to talk about today, tell us a little bit about yourself and um, maybe where some people may have heard of you, how you've come into the spotlight. What should we know about Barrett Brown? I, I was a pretty typical struggling turn of the century freelance journalist uh, starting out uh, as a young man. Ended up writing for Vanity Fair, The Guardian, uh, New York Press, a number of other outlets. And uh, as time went on, I grew more and more disenchanted with with mere journalism, as in journalism, uh, you know, as a sole arbiter or sole uh, remediator uh, of problems within a complex republic. Uh, it occurred to me that even as I was growing more successful and had more reach, uh, my impact was minimal. I mean, I, I wrote, you know, amusing, interesting commentary sometimes, but it had no real effect on anything. And that's that's true for, I think, a lot of journalists. Uh, and so I grew more open to uh, experiments. And so I got involved with Anonymous uh, in late 2010, right when they were getting involved in the Tunisian revolution. Uh, there was a number of uh, Anonymous uh, participants who were actually Tunisian nationals in country. And uh, th- this was a very, uh, uh, very novel and successful campaign they ran to help the democratic revolution in Tunisia, uh, to assist it by various means, including attacks on the Tunisian government's uh, sort of cyber intelligence infrastructure. 
and uh, from there on, I was I was very much committed to to pursuing this, to to, to helping to push it forward, expand it, uh, defend this new kind of emergent activism, and uh, th- things proceeded, and I got involved in this other sort of running conflict between us and the U.S. government and several other governments. Uh, and a number of private intelligence contracting firms, and in the process of exposing some of their plots, uh, some of which you know got quite a bit of media coverage when they came out, uh, particularly the one that, by which they sought to go after WikiLeaks and Glenn Greenwald and uh, other journalists and left-wing activist groups, uh, we became the target of F- an FBI investigation, uh, among other things. And so I ended up going to prison over all this and then got out in 2016, late 2016. And and ever since uh, ever since you've gotten out, you've been you've been moving forward with this new project called Pursuance, which we're going to talk about uh, in a little bit because I really I, I think it's a really exciting project, and there's a lot of um, aspects to it for us to kind of investigate. But before we do that, I, I do think it would be uh, it would be important for us to discuss this issue of your involvement with Wiki, with WikiLeaks and with Assange and where that has gone or how that's evolved or maybe we could say devolved. And um, I think a lot of people will have seen a recent story. This came out in the Daily Beast just a few days ago from when we're recording, dated uh, August 13th. Headline, Julian Assange went after a former ally. It backfired epically. So I don't want to summarize the story, obviously, and I, and I want to get to sort of the nitty-gritty of that, but let's just back up a second. Your involvement with WikiLeaks was what exactly and your direct involvement or non-involvement with Assange, just so that we can understand how you're connected to WikiLeaks. So very early on, even before I got involved with Anonymous, uh, I was uh, very much an early proponent of WikiLeaks, uh, to to an extent that uh, I was was sometimes called on to to talk on radio programs about WikiLeaks because there were very few uh, journalists who were that interested in early on. Uh, I I was very much inspired by this... This new, this new sort of phenomenon of these small groups of, of individuals working globally uh, and, and using the internet in, in entirely new ways, uh, by which to you know to to impose transparency on governments or, or disrupt criminal or corrupt activities by by institutions, and that, that was an exciting thing for me, and it very much led me to create my own uh, group, Project PM, which uh, later turned into an investigation, sort of a crowdsourced investigation into these intelligence contracting firms that Anonymous uh, had hacked and exposed. Uh, and, and so, over the next couple of years, uh, the, the, the main thing I was known for uh, was was my investigation into these these companies uh, that had worked for the DOJ and the FBI uh, and Booz Allen Hamilton, uh, among other things to go after WikiLeaks and to go after uh, WikiLeaks' supporters. And so uh, when this came out, after it came out, I continued to very doggedly pursue the people that were responsible because the people responsible, of course, uh, since they were so close to the U.S. government, uh, didn't really suffer any consequences. And I went after them so aggressively that the FBI, you know, uh, you know, uh, felt the necessity to go after me in, in turn. And so that was reflected in the search warrant that was executed on my uh, home and apartments uh, on, in March uh, March 6, 2012. Uh, that that search warrant is available on BuzzFeed, and it lists you know these same firms uh, that I've been investigating you know over there uh, attacks on WikiLeaks. So 
And then later on, what I actually was charged, one of the things I was actually charged with was this Stratfor hack that had been done by Jeremy Hammond and a few other individuals that I knew, and in which had yielded even more emails about this, this you know, privatized intelligence uh, industry that's, that's, you know, works very much intertwined with the U.S. government and other governments abroad. And uh, that, that was a, a leak that ultimately went to WikiLeaks. And that, that was in part because several of us were arguing uh, after the hack had occurred that those emails should go to WikiLeaks since they would be in a better position to ensure that they had an impact. Uh, and so when I when I went to prison, uh, you know, the, the WikiLeaks factor was was very it was widely reported as being, you know, an aspect of this. Now, I'd never had any direct contact with Assange uh, myself. People I uh, worked with had. Uh, I was, so I was never a WikiLeaks volunteer as such. Uh, I had been invited to uh, go through the Stratford documents on their server at some point, right before I went to prison, uh, but never actually did that. So I was never a WikiLeaks uh, person as such. We had our own thing going on, but it was oftentimes a defense of WikiLeaks. Uh, so that being the case, uh, you know, I, I obviously did not feel any obligations to WikiLeaks upon getting out of prison since, you know, I had, I'd, you know, uh, gone to prison in large part because of it. Uh, and so about the year after I got out, uh, you know, I understood that there was a lot of new concerns about Assange and about WikiLeaks's role in that last election. Uh, some of these concerns were the same concerns people have always had about the way Assange operates. Some of them were new. Uh, I did not oppose the releasing of, of the DNC and DCCC emails because that was an appropriate thing for a leaking organization to do. Uh, what I did, what I was uncomfortable with uh, from the very beginning, uh, getting out 2016, was this bizarre alliance uh, with, you know, alt-right figures, uh, some of the, the obvious, uh, the thing, the, even before some of the leaks later came out, the leaks that showed that Assange and or other work, WikiLeaks personnel had approached the Trump campaign and assisted them, and in some ways it's conspired with them. Uh, even before that, it was clear that, you know, that Assange had been actively rooting uh, for Trump to defeat Hillary Clinton for his own reasons. And that uh, obviously... Um, I think that that went past the boundaries that they themselves had established, uh, that they had openly uh, proclaimed to follow, as in WikiLeaks and Assange uh, himself had both said during the election and after the election that they had not been involved in the election and that they had not uh, favored any particular uh, candidate. And then, of course, it came out later on that, in fact, they had, that Assange, in his own words, had wanted Trump to win for particular reasons. Uh, that, it, you know, that WikiLeaks got in touch with the campaign and uh, so on and so forth. So when that stuff came out, I was extraordinarily upset. Uh, and there was a couple of occasions in which Assange reached out to me through intermediaries to arrange a conversation so that he could, you know, supposedly explain himself to me. And he never did so. Uh, I think I think the, the intent there was just to kind of uh, perhaps get me back in the fold or, or you know, uh, you know, something. But uh, anyway, by that time, I had learned a great deal more uh, from people who had been involved with WikiLeaks uh, in the past years and had left or, or whatever. And so as these other things came out in public, I grew more and more critical, openly critical of WikiLeaks. And, and this obviously uh, has made things complicated. Well, uh, so tell us a little bit about um, how that was received, because I mean, I, I 
happened to follow a lot of the threads and a lot of those conversations, but I know a lot of people would have missed that. So you come out of prison, you follow what's going on and in the aftermath of the election, and you make it public that you have a very strong disagreement with how WikiLeaks has handled all of this. And what happened next? Well, there was uh, there was a lot of pushback. Uh, Assange has some very, very uh, passionate allies still. Uh, they tend not to be the same level of people that he used to have, as in he has a dwindling pool of uh, individuals uh, who tend to be, uh, I think, lower caliber than the kind of allies he had back in the day. Uh, And so there was a great deal of criticism uh, directed at me from uh, these remaining allies, including Kim.com, Susie Dawson, who was the head of the New Zealand uh, Internet Party and kind of a strange figure in her own right, uh, and et cetera, et cetera. Now, this had been a, a factional conflict that had already been ongoing by the time I got out of prison. Obviously, you know, this was not the first uh, fight between Assange and one of his former supporters that had been going on over and over again. Uh, people like Birgitta Jansdottir, the Icelandic member of parliament and a pirate party stalwart uh, who had been involved in WikiLeaks early on and is depicted, I think, in the movie uh, Fit the State, which I don't I've never seen. I don't think anyone else has seen it either. Uh, you know, she had joined our board of directors for pursuance, which we'll you know get into later. So we've all, there was already a tendency for people who were still wanted to be involved in in some of these novel forms of net centered activism uh, to come on uh, to my side uh, gradually. And obviously that upset Assange quite a bit. Assange is easily upsettable for one thing, and that's the kind of thing that uh, you know is, is you know will upset him quite a bit. So. Uh, more recent. So what happened? Uh, my other connection with WikiLeaks that had been established after I was sentenced was that the Courage Foundation, an organization uh, to assist whistleblowers, had been founded by Assange himself and his former uh, close partner Sarah Harrison. Uh, so this organization raised money for, for whistleblowers and, and leakers and, and so forth. Uh, did, did advocacy advocacy for them on different levels, etc. And after my sentencing. Uh, the Free Barrett Brown organization that had raised all the money for my defense, my legal defense uh, from that point, uh, f- from early on until then, uh, agreed to come under the Courage Foundation and uh, let them run that legal fund. And uh, I didn't receive very much money after that. I received about $3,600 in total. And I just recently learned that uh, actually, in fact, $14,000 had been raised uh, for me, had been donated for my benefit. Uh, which is fine because I had voluntarily uh, told, you know, I told them that they could use, that my donations could go into the common pool for all beneficiaries. I had no problem with that. I understood that there was other beneficiaries uh, either who, are, who are still in prison or still uh, fighting, you know, very, very strident U.S. efforts to uh, to extradite them, as in the case of uh, Laurie Love, who's one of the beneficiaries there. And so that that's all well and good. But when I started criticizing WikiLeaks, uh, that Courage Foundation thing was used as a cudgel against me, as in you had people who should know better, uh, including Assange himself, uh, out there uh, on the Internet uh, castigating me for having turned against these people who had let me have $3,500 of my own money. So that was upsetting for me. And, uh, you know, obviously it served as grist for the WikiLeaks defenders. It helped them to cast me as some amoral character. Uh, who had no right to be criticizing Assange because, after all, I'd done four years in prison, uh, you know, for his movement. Uh, so it's some bizarre logic at work there. But more, so more recently, what happened recently was um, Assange himself, and there's some details here that I can't yet uh, go into because I don't have, uh, you know, I'm, I'm working on information provided from people 
uh, closer to the situation than I am, uh, who, who uh, just don't want to get into this conflict yet. Assange had expressed increasing uh, uh, upset over my uh, my own increasing prominence and had basically said that, you know, Barrett Brown is trying to take over this movement. And that happened a while ago. And then more recently, the uh, three members of the board of directors of Courage, the board of uh, the trustees, uh, had ordered Naomi Colvin, the director of uh, Courage Foundation, who, who's an Oxford grad and does a great job and has been involved in lots of very successful activism. Uh, they ordered her to cut me off as a beneficiary. Now, that would have no practical effect on me. Uh, since I don't get any money from them, and in fact, quite the contrary, but she resigned as a matter of principle. Uh, and of course, she was already kind of unhappy with the situation she'd been put in as someone who was expected to defend Assange uh, as a matter of course, and who could not intellectually or morally uh, bring herself to do so. Uh, obviously, like me, she agrees that Assange should not be extradited, that you know that the uh, campaign against him started well before anything he did he did anything controversial. It started because, you know, not not because of his uh, vices before his virtues. And so, you know, nonetheless, that's not enough for them. Uh, they demand, you know, pretty complete uh, obedience to whatever the Assange uh, line is. And so she resigned and she made that public and uh, th that article came out. And since then, there's been a quite a bit of uh, renewed conflict among these two factions of this movement. You know, the, uh, I, I refer to them as, as the obscurantist uh, real politic faction represented by Assange and the uh, sort of uh, moral, candid faction uh, represented by us. Uh, you know, obviously Assange has a certain way of doing things. He has a certain range of, uh, he has a certain tool set that he uses over and over again. And these tend to involve disinformation. They tend to involve uh, just other things that, you know, come right out of the CIA playbook, frankly. And uh, that's why he had already lost, you know, so many uh, valuable people uh, up to that point. So that that's that's basically that's where we are now. And so there's this there's this larger conflict that I think needs to come into I think it needs to come to a head. I think it needs to be uh, accelerated so it could be resolved so we can get past it and, and just determine, you know, which faction is which. And, and, you know, are we really are we really the same faction if we disagree on very fundamental things like, you know, transparency and whether or not it's OK to associate with, say, the alt right? I think those are all very valid questions, but one thing that one thing that uh, comes out when you read the piece and when you you know when you listen to you telling the story, and this is not simply from you, but from a number of other people who have made very similar uh, statements. And I guess I'm just going to ask it point blank. I mean, is Assange essentially making WikiLeaks and his circle within WikiLeaks into like a cult? Because that's sort of what it seems like, where he's sort of a cult leader, and you basically just have to follow his directives and do, you know, his divine will, as it were. That, that's the word that comes up again and again uh, with his detractors, uh, some of whom have, you know, like Birgitta Jan's daughter, uh, have been close to him in the past and know exactly uh, how he's like, how he functions in private, uh, how his private utterances uh, differ from his public utterances. Of course, we know we know every anyone can now go and look at the eleven thousand leaked uh, chat messages between him and uh, nine or ten of his online followers that came out a while back and uh, see for themselves how he operates, e even you know in a, in a unsecure uh, you know uh, medium. Uh, he he is a a again he engages in real politic essentially. He is the Henry Kissinger of the transparency movement, and so. Uh, that being the case, he is also 
you know, almost a Stalin type of figure. And that's, that's obviously a very, that's a very serious uh, term to use, but it's, it's one that becomes increasingly unavo- unavoidable as you see how they operate. And as you see the kind of people who are, are still willing to, to, to go to bat with, with for him on every single issue. I mean, I, I've, I don't think I've ever seen a, a faction uh, that is so just immune to facts to known demonstrable facts, including the man's own utterances, uh, as this one. Uh, it, it's remarkable uh, how bad it's gotten. And, you know, that's, it's a shame, obviously. The whole thing is a shame because, you know, he was in a situation at some point years ago where he did have a great deal of what you might call potential energy, you know, like a rock on top of a cliff. There was a great deal of stuff he could have done with the moral authority he had gained by virtue of the persecution against him, and by, by, by virtue of the very successful, very important things that he helps to do. Uh, and so that's, that's, that's always going to be the case. It's always going to be the case that the things that WikiLeaks did in the early years uh, were very important. It's always going to be the case that their leaks, uh, as, their, as their, his uh, defenders point out, are you know, accurate. You know, I, I, no, no one is, I don't think, uh, questioning the accuracy of the things they put out. The, the problem is that uh, WikiLeaks doesn't, doesn't just put out documents. It also engages in a great deal of behind-the-scenes politicking and sometimes uh, open politicking in the public sphere. And much of that has been deleterious, uh, demonstrably false. Uh, this thing with Seth Rich, which Assange himself perpetuated on Dutch television, uh, in which Kim.com, his close associate, has uh, made some uh, claims about that I, I know for a fact are not true. Uh, that's just something that no that people can't stomach, and uh, you know it. it th- th- there's a point at which it becomes clear again that you know, despite these these people who want us to stop fighting, who saying that we're all on the same side, well, we're really not. If you think that journalism and transparency and all that is a cudgel to be used against a certain institution, uh, and and not against other institutions, which themselves must always be uh, blameless, then no, you're not a journalist. You're not on my side. Uh, and that's obviously an increasingly common sentiment among people who, you know, many people who used to give WikiLeaks the benefit, benefit of the doubt. You know, I, I have to say that uh, I would put myself in that category of, of somebody who put a lot of value in everything that WikiLeaks was doing and, and certainly uh, defending WikiLeaks and, and certainly seeing Assange as not only a sympathetic figure, if not uh, quite heroic and selfless, uh, you know, certainly in those early years and especially once he was d- uh, directly targeted. But the problem, the, the, the problem comes in that we have to make a separation between WikiLeaks as an institution and the function that it serves and, and, and the role that it plays and what it's done in a very tangible way and separate that from Assange as an individual and Assange as the quote-unquote leader of WikiLeaks. And I wonder if you could comment on uh, whether or not you found that people are unable to make that separation and whether or not that has led to animosity towards you. Yeah, well, here's the complicating factor is that Assange has uh, is and always has been subject to a lot of disingenuous and false uh, attacks, and and uh, and also attacks just made, you know, out of out of ignorance or out of misunderstanding. I mean, uh, and he was absolutely like he he as a personality was focused upon quite a bit in the early days, and that I used to complain about that quite a bit because you know they were focusing more on him uh, than on the leaks themselves because the press that's how the press works. I mean that's how a lazy journalist prefers to operate. It is much easier to write a think piece about is Julian Assange this, this, and this than it is to go through these cables and look at Shell Oil's uh, influence over the Nigerian government. Uh, 
you know, and that's just that's just a fact of modern journalism, unfortunately. I mean, it's, it's always been a fact of journalism, but you know, it becomes increasingly pronounced uh, at different different points in our history. Uh, and so that's that's one of those things where you know, nuance obviously is the first casualty uh, of this kind of era in which so much commentary is done via Twitter. Uh, it, it makes you know, uh, nuance is you know, obviously. It's hard. It's hard to uh, pull off these days. And so, if I post a Twitter thing saying, you know, I'm a, you know, he should not have been talking to Donald Trump Jr. and he should not have been lying about it publicly, uh, you know, the next thing is, why do you like the CIA? Why do you, you know, why are you agreeing with the deep state's attacks on Assange? Why do you want to silence him? And of course, you know, I've already written in, uh, quite a bit and and said quite a bit in interviews about, you know, how I quite to the contrary. Uh, I don't support the FBI, obviously. I, there's no no love lost between me and the agency that uh, threatened my mother with prosecution. Uh, you know, it, but it, it, sometimes it's hard to get all that stuff in there. And, and in, in many cases, it doesn't matter if, if you say all that. Like I put out a statement regarding this whole affair, uh, you know, the other day so that my uh, views would be clear. And that doesn't always help. You know, there are certain people and a, there's a heavy concentration of people in that you know, super pro Assange camp uh, that are not interested uh, in hearing that you actually do support his rights versus the state, because that uh, is not helpful to them. That's not a narrative that can be used to paint me as, you know, perhaps someone who, who has secretly made a deal with the U.S. government, which is now something that uh, a lot of people, including like Susie, Susie Dawson, again, the head of the New Zealand Internet Party, not just some random supporter, uh, has put out there. You know, and that's they have to do that because the alternative is to acknowledge that someone who is a very as a person who has a reputation for honesty and who did uh, throw himself against the state and against his other other uh, pursuers very aggressively at, at risk to himself and at risk to his own family uh, has now, you know, by by virtue of the same principles uh, turned against him. And that's not a position they want to be in. They want to be in a position where they can attribute all criticism of Assange and of WikiLeaks uh, but particularly of Assange, to uh, nefarious uh, forces. And that's, you know, that's what they prefer. And it, there, there's, a, there's a demographic, there's a, there's a constituency in which that kind of thing does totally work. Uh, and that's a constituency that they have left. Indeed, and and the other the other aspect of this uh, that I that I just wanted to touch on and, and get your comment on is the very strange, um, almost well, I can't say it's inexplicable because I could think of a number of explanations, but certainly very strange interactions and and tenuous connections between WikiLeaks slash Assange and the alt right or the far right. I mean, we've heard in the press, you know, everything from the back channel with Roger Stone to potentially, you know, to Alex. Alex Jones and who knows what else. In other words, there is a there is a way of looking at WikiLeaks in 20, 2016 and since as essentially part of that world, and and that's one of the real tragedies of all of this is that there for a long time WikiLeaks was really seen as kind of objective and apart and and its own thing, and now it does seem to be almost an entity of Trumpism. Well, you know, Glenn Greenwald, who is still uh, tends to be a vocal supporter of WikiLeaks and, and a partial supporter of Assange in some ways, uh, did he, he? He also makes a lot of great points, even though I oppose him on the Russia uh, Trump uh, uh, issue. Um, he does make a lot of good points regarding that and regarding the press's overreaching, its failures, uh, 
the forces that, you know, are the neocon forces that are obviously now in league with the resistance, et cetera. All of those things definitely need to be analyzed and discussed and, and looked at honestly. Uh, and, and in the same regard, uh, uh, you know, he Assange writ, wrote a great deal of material back in the day uh, explaining exactly what his views were and his, you know, and he, he WikiLeaks was never really intended, even though they did, did sometimes paint themselves as an objective, you know, force for just transparency against everything equally. Uh, they were always from the beginning uh, somewhat intent on exposing uh, what they consider to be the most dangerous powers and, and they consider the U.S. government uh to be the most dangerous force. Uh, that's something he says over and over again, and it's something he, he did make clear. So that's, it's, they do have that defense, you know, basically saying that, hey, you know, this was this was out there years ago. We didn't just suddenly change. This has been kind of been the deal the whole time. Having said that, uh, he's also lied considerably. He, he's used that whole objectivity thing. Uh, he's put that out uh, when, you know, when it, when he, when it suits his, his uh, agenda. And, uh, you know, he's, he's made contradictory statements. He's been caught in lies. Uh, and so that's it's less of a defense when you take into account the entirety of what we now know about what he's said and what he's done and what he's meanwhile said publicly, including to his donors and supporters and to people like me who, uh, you know, went to bat for this. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. When we talk about when we talk about what we like about WikiLeaks, it was exposing the U.S. government, exposing, like you said, you know, Shell and Nigeria or exposing the, di you know, the diplomatic cables and all of the various destabilization efforts in Africa and in Latin America and all of this information that we're still relying on today to tell, you know, stories about what's going on in the world. That's what we liked about WikiLeaks. The problem, of course, is everything that you just mentioned. And as it has evolved or devolved, I, I, I'm afraid that WikiLeaks has certainly eroded a lot of its credibility and a lot of its cachet, and that obviously hurts the movement in, in more ways than Assange as an individual ever could. Right. And there's other, another argument that I, that I tend to make, which is that if you're going to portray yourself as a revolutionary or a radical, an active radical, engaged in active uh, campaigns against powerful institutions, uh, great. But you must also uh, accept the responsibilities of a revolutionary. You can't you can't take that mantle and take the glory and take everything that comes with it, and then uh, demands to be treated like a teenager uh, when when things get difficult. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of arguments that have been made openly uh, and in private to me by close associates that well, look, he was in this situation, he's in this embassy, and you know. He doesn't want Clinton to win because she supposedly said she wanted a drone strike him, even though that's still unsourced. Uh, and uh, that is not a valid argument. It's not the point of this movement was not to protect Julian Assange from the beginning. Julian Assange was here to protect the world. Uh, that was his claim. That was his. Uh, that was why he got all these donations and support, et cetera, because he was going to be the revolutionary that came out of the the last you know thirty forty years of of inaction and, uh, you know, uh, uh, going along to get along, not fighting city hall, the kind of sort of the Western decadence that's been, uh, occurring for so long. And he did, you know, and instead he's proven to be, uh, soft. And that's the last, that, that is indefensible to me to be soft. Uh, your job, if you go in for this kind of thing, if you become a revolutionary and take these responsibilities and take everything that goes with it, uh, you also have to follow certain basic broad rules. And trying to engineer an election uh, in another country, in part because it benefits you personally, uh, that is not appropriate to that pursuit.
I think that's very well said. All right, let's uh, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back from the break, I want to talk a little bit about this project uh, that, that you have going because I think it's really exciting and, and something that everybody does need to know about, especially as we're kind of getting in on the ground level, as it were. So uh, a lot more to discuss with Barrett Brown here on Counterpunch Radio. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the music. We'll be right back. Come quick, go laugh, love, fucking drink liquor, and help make a revolution. I'm here to laugh, love, fucking drink liquor, and help the damn revolution come quicker. Laugh, love, fucking drink liquor, and maybe make a revolution. Now the stain finna end in fisticuffs, but if you got to go here, twist it up. Let's your job finna make you piss and cuffs, make you have to hustle rent with your pistols up. Now if Uncle Sam bombers in his murder gang, we gon' rise out the ash like that bird of flame. Hoping you take action from the word I bring, but if the police ask, you never heard my name. Five years old, eyelids half mass. Bedtime is 8 p.m., it's half past. Try to take me to bed, I make the mad dash. Scared in my sleep, I miss what had passed. Quarter century later, I'm still not sleeping. If I'm not involved, I feel I ain't breathing. If I can't change the world, I ain't leaving, baby. That's the same reason you should call me to see you. Laugh, love, fucking drink liquor. And help the damn revolution come quicker. Laugh, love, fucking drink liquor. And help make a revolution. I'm here to laugh, love, fucking drink liquor. And help the damn revolution come quicker. Laugh, love, fucking drink liquor. And maybe make a revolution. I'm finna take shots and make a mark. Not just take shots and make us mark. That's how they make us marks. We got dry to see the whole system break apart. We finna drive to the lake and park. Before we start, here's a club smelling like sweat, rum, and perfume. She letting out whoops cause they playing her tune. If we could, we would stay here till it turn noon. Till the sky we exist and resume. It's Millennium 3, we collar them cup. It's a world conversation, I'm hollering stuff Like we done wallow them up and squallowing up Who's the culprit? Follow the fuck, I'm just following up Cause like me, you got to be in the middle of it Unraveling the riddle of it And to do that, you gon' ride on the powers of B Well, I'm finna ride with you, take me home with you, little fuck Laugh, love, fucking drink liquor And help the damn revolution come quicker Laugh, love, fucking drink liquor Help make a revolution. I'm here to laugh, love, fucking drink liquor, and help the damn revolution come quicker. Laugh, fucking drink liquor, and maybe make a revolution. And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio, chatting with Barrett Brown again. Uh, Barrett's work is—I uh, couldn't—I couldn't possibly recommend it more highly. Uh, you got to go to pursuanceproject.org, find out about the Pursuance Project, or rather, find out more about the Pursuance Project there. But that's what I want to discuss uh, with you right now. I mean, we we definitely had our fill of the uh, WikiLeaks and Assange question, but in in many ways, Barrett, that's kind of the past, I think, and, and, and your, your new project, Pursuance, is at least in some sense a vision of the future, the future of what uh, the movement could become. So let's talk about what Pursuance is, because it's a little complicated, and I think that people need to be able to visualize it in their mind to understand just how important this is. So tell us about Pursuance, how does it work, what is it, and what gave you this idea? So the crucial background is here is that we've seen a lot of successful things uh, done using sort of this very these novel kinds of internet facilitated emergent activism. Uh, you know, in, again, in, in the last 
decade and a half. Uh, Anonymous is the most obvious example. You know, the Tunisian Revolution, some of these other uh, assistance programs for Bahrain, the uh, this massive, uh, very successful investigation, and in some cases thwarting of actual uh, uh, plots by the U.S. government and other other institutions, uh, were very successful. And so from that and many other things, we can see that this can work, that it can work to bring together uh, large numbers of people from around the world into a single online space and have them organize uh, amongst themselves uh, new uh, ways of fighting back against these things and, and new ways of building uh, structures to oppose to oppose the old institutions that we've inherited you know, from a broken and haphazard history. Uh, we, so we, we now know a great deal about the specifics of how that can work, uh, what works best, uh, what can go wrong, you know, what the obstacles are, what the dangers are from, from existing institutions, you know, how the government comes after these things, uh, how private companies react to them, uh, how, how friction develops among participants. And so now we're finally in a position where we can take that body of knowledge and sort of uh, you know, systematize it and build something uh, that would serve as a next step. Uh, anonymous, you know, was uh, it's a jellyfish. It, it is a it is an amorphous thing. There's no charter. There's no constitution that was to, in some ways to its advantage. But it also meant that there was nothing keeping it together. There was nothing nothing preventing it from either deteriorating or turning into something else. And in fact, it did both. Anonymous uh, is now mostly uh, its infrastructure is largely uh, Facebook pages with with young and oftentimes very uh, erratic and strange uh, individuals. Uh, with, you know, Guy Fox Max on our profiles. Uh, it, it's almost nothing. And, and to the extent it exists, a lot of it has been taken over by uh, alt-right type of people. And that was definitely, that's very, very contrary to its original uh, constituency, its, its original demographics. So the, the question is, how can we combine this, how can we take the same agility and this same uh, really remarkable, remarkable tendency to bring people together and get set them to work and, and, and uh, allow them to do these things with that same agility, but also to develop uh, protocols, uh, to develop processes uh, whereby agreement, systems of agreements are made, a series of agreements between participants, uh, so that these things can be sustainable, so that they can grow over time without being over-encumbered and without uh, letting in people who are working contrary to these open society goals that Anonymous originally stood for. And so pursuance is, you know, after a lot of thought and, uh, you know, I've had a lot of time to think in prison, obviously, uh, this is a more refined version of something I was trying to put together even before Anonymous. Project PM was originally intended to create these first, this sort of blogger cartel, a, a superior information sharing apparatus. And then uh, we added on to that what we called civic networks, uh, you know, just non-media people, random citizens. Uh, who wanted to work together online in new ways to do uh, clever things using information. And so this is an old model that I had. That I, There's an old YouTube video uh, of me when I was much younger and more innocent uh, with a little dry erase board showing how this would work. Uh, so now we have this more refined version that's, that's better informed by facts on the ground, better informed uh, uh, you know, with this, this knowledge we now have of how these things actually work in practice. Uh, it is a framework. Uh, a framework for online collaboration. It's a visualized system uh, in which you, you can sort of visualize it as an ecosystem. Visualize it as an ocean uh, with little particles, molecules, uh, little elements. These are all the individual participants. These little molecules, these, these little elements can come together just like uh, actual molecules are formed 
uh, in systematic ways to form entities, to form pursuances. These are like uh, living organizational charts. I'm sorry to be mixing metaphors here, but uh, sometimes I can't help myself. Uh, it's an ecosystem that can produce uh, uh, an infinite variety of ways by which people can join together in working relationships uh, to do these things better, to do better the things that we already know will work, and to experiment with new methods, and to very easily and quickly perpetuate these new methods uh, to ensure that everyone is, uh, has access to the latest and best thinking on how you reform your city, how you get information out how you engage in crowdsource research, how you take control of the media flow, uh, how you organize marches and uh, demonstrations, and in some cases, revolutions. Uh, and so, so it's a framework whereby participants who agree with this open society philosophy and who originally, with the original population of these users being chosen by us, uh, come into this, this system. They start building. All of them are equal. They can all build uh, they can establish their own pursuances, as we call them, their own entities, decide what they're for, decide how they'll grow, decide, uh, you know, what the power structure is, as in what, how much agency do, do new users have, et cetera. Uh, and at the same time, anyone who disagrees with the way a pursuance uh, is run, and there's, of course, again, infinite ways for a structure, just like any structure, uh, to exist, any, any infinite combinations of you know, different degrees of agency, different connections. Uh, anyone can create their own pursuance and, and try to do the very the same thing in a different way. We call this process democracy, uh, wherein every participant starts equal and they form agreements. And uh, from there, they build more and more refined and complex structures to do certain kinds of work. And then over time, those structures connect with one another to create something akin to a superorganism. Uh, this is all better better understood when you look at an illustration of it, when you see some visual aids, because, again, this is this is a visualized system uh, by design. Uh, and it's good for all sorts of things, NGOs, nonprofits, uh, existing institutions that wants to better make use of their constituents, that want to better make use of their volunteers or would-be volunteers, can use this to very easily uh, harness these people into self-organizing uh, networks to do certain kinds of work. Uh, there's there's a, a book by the founder of the Pirate Party that I haven't read it, read it, but I've seen some selections from it. And at one point, uh, his name is like Rich Valkyrie. I'm probably uh, pronouncing it incorrectly. But he's talking to a guy who runs an organization and he tells him, your problem is not the people that work for you. Your, your problem is the people that want to work for you for free, but you don't let them. And so this is this is in part a an attempt to solve that problem, to allow uh, organizations uh that already exist, including uh, you know city councilmen, for instance, some of whom are, are going to be using this, uh, you know, to NGOs, you know, uh, uh, advocacy groups, uh, you know, uh, everything that's already in play, uh, in in favor of the open society, to come together, uh, to vastly uh, uh, expand upon what they're doing, without any expenditure of money or time, and, and with very little risk. And, uh, and, and to better build connections among one another while also allowing individuals who don't want to be part of a group, don't want to, don't want to be part of an organization or a structure to find one another and uh, agree, you know, gradually to their own uh, uh, makeshift sort of procedural uh, structures for change. And all of this happens in the same place. It all happens in the same environment. And so it's going to be much easier for, say, a group that wants to uh, take used bikes and refurbish them and send them to Africa 
uh, to find other people who have the the uh, the means and the intents to do that same thing and to more easily uh, establish the structures necessary to do that. Uh, so this is this is necessarily because it's a universal system. Uh, while at the same time, we also have several uh, key focused uses of it that we're trying to push, like crowdsource research, you know, uh, online emergent activism, as well as, you know, existing NGOs. It's hard to uh, convey everything that it is. Uh, that's why, you know, we have a website. We have some there's been some articles in The Observer, uh, New York, for instance, about what we're doing uh, that might help uh different potential users get a sense of what they might use it for. Absolutely. And again, I, I urge people to check the website, pursuanceproject.org. A uh, lot more information there. But Barrett, help us to understand a little bit further, because you're right, it, it is, it's abstract and it does require a little bit of visualization, which I think is uh, certainly uh, very good on the website. But in this medium here, you and I talking to each other, people listening to our, just our voices, Maybe it might be helpful to walk through maybe what, what a real-world example would look like from a journalism and research perspective. So I have a story, but I only feel like maybe I have a piece of that story, and I want to kind of uh, pursue this further and need help from other people. What do I do, and where does pursuance come in for me? So first, so first you, uh, you get an invitation to pursuance, which is there's a number of ways to do that, but we'll, we'll skip that for now. Uh, I'd like to emphasize that this is not a content-neutral platform, that, that, that you know, we're, not, we're setting this up such that this is going to be, even as it expands, even as the expansion uh, leaves our control, uh, particip- participants are the ones that bring in new users. Like uh, Participants, each new, you know, each new wave of participants has the ability to bring on other participants, uh, a limited number per month. Uh, and so there's, there's, we, we've put in place a way for it to expand rapidly without that same degree of risk of it being uh, used for purposes contrary to the open society agenda. Uh, but so as a journalist that so you come in, you find or, or you, know, you either find a couple of people or you already have some in mind that you bring in that you're going to have help you with this. They'll be sort of attached to you and your pursuance. They will be uh, in a way under you. Uh, is what one of doing it. Uh, their task is to uh, bring on others who are interested in helping you as a journalist pursue stories, uh, or who are interested in help in uh, sending you tips on stories that you may have missed. Uh, we know that we know that people do this because it happens all the time on Twitter. We know every every journalist gets tips, uh, but the way that they get them uh, via email or by you know uh, sort of just uh, unregulated uh, sort of Twitter comments. Uh, the important stories tend to get lost in the fog of nonsense. And so this, this apparatus helps them to get around that by uh, allowing your, your, these people you bring on to establish these procedural networks in which any number of people can come on uh, to this large extended network under this journalist. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily matter because even to the extent that you've got 500 people now who, who have at some point uh, attached this pursuance, uh, even to that extent, there's a human filter operation going on here where 90% of those people could be absolutely insane. Uh, and, and a portion of those could be FBI agents. But it doesn't matter because so long as your two people that you brought on to begin with uh, are reliable, uh, you're only going to get the, the very best of that. It, it, it's being filtered through like, a, like a, uh, a sand, whatever, whatever that thing is that sand goes through. I'm sure there's a term for that. 
an hourglass? No, no, it's a, uh, you know, when you're mining for gold, when you're, when you're painting for gold. Oh, pa- oh, yeah. I don't so, know. But you understand the, the concept. Yeah. So sure. the human filter system comes into place. And so uh, rather than having to go through your 40 emails you got today on your Proton, Proton Mail account, uh, much of which are nonsense, and figure out for yourself, you know, in your own time, which of these are worth pursuing? Because oftentimes it's not clear. Oftentimes, you know, uh, you know, when Glenn Greenwald was approached by Edward Snowden, uh, the reason he didn't re- set up the uh, encryption apparatus at, his, at Snowden's request wasn't because he was lazy. It was because he didn't think it was going to be worth it, because the vast majority of inquiries a journalist receives are not worth it. And so under this system, had, had, had Greenwald been using uh, this uh, pursuance network of this sort, uh, there would be people who, whose job, whose role uh, is to sift through these things and push them forward towards Glyd Greenwald uh, as uh, people confirm that there's something of interest here. Now, a system like that, obviously, as it grows, there could be problems of its own. Obviously, a, a huge network with people on the margins uh, sometimes means that the people on the margins uh, might be more clever or might be more useful than the ones uh, higher up in the network. And we get around that uh, via a number of uh, sort of little little additions we made that we're very proud of, one of which is that the, the default setting on any pursuance, regardless of what it's used for, uh, is such that anyone in, in a network, in a pursuance, can send one message to anyone else in the network uh, whenever they like, about whatever they like. And if that message, if, if the recipient finds that message valuable, they can renew that ability for that person. And ultimately, if they'd like, they can reposition them in the network, put them, put them closer to the, to, the, uh, to the core of it. Uh, that way we get around the, the, you know, the problem of, you know, middlemen uh, who try not to be incompetent or uh, avarice filled or whatever. Uh, and we, we ensure that stuff is not lost due to size, due, due to, uh, you know, o- overgrowth. Uh, but so the bottom line is that this is a system that takes what already happens. We already have tips coming in. You already have people providing unsolicited advice on, on uh, Twitter uh, and allows a crowdsourced network. Uh, to be very easily established without any real expenditure of time and energy uh, by the journalist. You just have volunteers who are interested in journalism who wants to help either uh, – oh, I, I guess I should, I should give an example of how this would work specifically. Let's say you as a journalist, uh, you have a story idea, your half-story idea, as you mentioned. Uh, you would send down a message saying, this is what I'm interested in looking at. And so find me things uh, about this subject if you'd like. And people will, uh, as that message goes down, people will respond and send stuff up. Uh, and that filters through, et cetera. And ultimately, you get uh, a, a great deal of information that you would not have gotten, uh, I guarantee, as a single journalist. You know, the, the journalism model we have of, of journalist, you know, an editor and sometimes fact checker, you know, that still derives from 17th century London. And it hasn't been fundamentally updated since. Uh, even though journalists now use the Internet in all kinds of ways, they don't really use it. They haven't really thought about, wow, what could we do with this? Because uh, a lot of them, of course, a lot of them don't care, really. A lot of them really aren't out to uh, rock the boat. Very few of them are uh, kept awake at night at the thought that they might not have really, uh, really done that story correctly. Uh, you know, they don't have the time. So this is not only useful to – it's not only a useful way to, to uh, improve journalism. It's an easy way for a journalist to do the things he's supposed to do. And that's important because when we, when we try to uh, cater to journalists, we always try to uh, uh, make accommodations for their uh, historical laziness. 
Um, <laughs> that's good. Question for you then would be, so in my example, if I, if I establish this pursuance for, you know, whatever the investigative piece that I'm working on is to expose, you know, some local candidate running in the congressional campaign as recently happened with a piece of mine on Counterpunch, um, I set up this pursuance, I have this structure in place, people are sending me uh, this information, the project, uh, you know, turns out well, I, I get a good piece and it's done. Now, does my pursuance uh, group, or, you know, for, for lack of a better word, does that stay in place for my next project? Does it change with each project? Do I have to kind of reinvent the wheel? Or how does it work in terms of evolving from project to project with, it, with a specific uh, individual? All of this is up to the originator of the pursuance, the person who created it, and or those he's given agency uh, over time. And again, there's, there's many, many ways of configuring all that. But uh, generally in this situation, you would keep this same network of people. Uh, now, to the extent that you were doing, you started doing a very specific kind of uh, investigation that would require specialists, uh, you could obviously uh, put out word using this, this system within the pursuance to find other people with those skills or knowledge. There's a, obviously a search engine you can use to search via keywords like a city, a particular city, or a particular you know background or educational field or whatever. Um, and bring those people on and they can come on for the duration and they can detach and go back to whatever else they were doing. A person can be a member of uh, more than one pursuance uh, and in fact many, uh, many cases will be. Obviously your journalism network, uh, you're only going to be using it you know, every, perhaps every week or so. And in the meantime, people who are still want to be doing stuff, they'll also be involved in their local city pursuance or they'll be involved in the prison reform pursuance as well. Now that's where the, some more opportunities lie because say you're doing an article on Milwaukee politics, but you're not from Milwaukee. Uh, there will, will there will be any number of pursuances that uh, will have insight into the story that you can very easily now uh, uh, interface with via what we call informal connections uh, or formal connections. So there's a, there's a number of ways, without getting into the nitty-gritty here, there's a number of ways by which to capitalize on the fact that there are huge numbers of people in this system who have a great deal of no collective knowledge. There, there's many ways of ensuring that knowledge gets where it needs to go and that talent and skills uh, get to where they need to be used. There will be pursuances that we, that we refer to as crews uh, that operate very much like a lot of people in anonymous or in just very amorphous groups like Occupy uh, operated. You know, in those situations, you over time learn who is good at what. Uh, and, you, and there'll be like an anonymous in the, in the chat servers, there were channels where people who were designers hung out. And when you wanted uh, some image, some propaganda, some... Uh, some pictures to go up on Twitter and, and proliferate uh, in support of a campaign, you went to them and said, hey, blah, blah, we need this. Uh, so pursuance will allow that same uh, growing understanding of where the skills are and, and where, uh, where real ability is uh, to be, again, further systematized, to be, to be uh, made more efficient uh, while still you know, maintaining the agility uh, that, that makes those movements so important. And, and so that, that's the theme across the board here. It's, it's you know, the, the, the problem we're trying to solve is how do we we know that there are millions and millions around the globe who agree with us on these basic issues and probably on more. Uh, how do we how do we solve this problem of getting them into a cohesive body where they're still independent, where they're still, you know, they're, they're agreeing step by step to what they're going to do and who they're going to work with and have the ability to, you know, not uh, work with those that they don't want to. Uh, how do how do we. Uh, how do we solve that problem? Because whoever solves that problem first, whoever truly approaches uh, 
the 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 science of uh, arranging or allowing to be arranged large numbers of people into networks that go beyond the basic institutions that we've just kind of uh, gotten through inertia. Uh, whoever solves that problem, whatever faction solves that problem, whatever ideology solves that problem first, uh, will be the one that wins in the 21st century. It very, very interesting to put it in such uh, stark terms, but I don't know that I can disagree with you. Now, one of the things that strikes me about uh, pursuance is that it's almost um, it's almost like an anti-social media. And, and what I mean by that is that for for all of the, you know, interconnectedness, quote unquote, that social media fosters, the sort of, you know, the shrinking of the globe with Facebook and Twitter and all of that, the interconnectedness, etc., it's it feels that we are all the more atomized that we're that we are increasingly in our own little silos no matter how interconnected we become no matter how easy it is to communicate with people on the other side of the planet we're not actually collaborating we're not actually engaging in any kind of collective efforts to a large extent but we're really just millions of individuals kind of floating around giving our ideas and opinions and it kind of just goes off into the ether and in that regard it seems like pursuance is trying to be exactly the inverse of that yes i mean so so whether it be Facebook or Twitter or the anonymous IRC channels where you have 100 people in a chat room all day, it is a chat room. You know, the IRC networks, the IRC protocols were not designed for activism and neither was, neither was any of this stuff. It's all designed for spending time on whatever, you know, and that's generally takes the form of wasting time. So this is this is a system that has been designed with that in mind. Like I'm I'm I am I've always been less concerned with. Uh, governments and private sector infiltration uh, by bad actors uh, than I have been with uh, the uh, people who are well-intended but don't belong there uh, or, uh, you know, people who are actually good at what they do. But when you put them in certain mediums, certain situations, uh, there's a tendency to slack off and gossip and, and get in fights. Uh, so this is designed to allow people to come together, uh, but not too closely. It's, it's designed in a way such that uh, this is not something that lends itself to to time wasting. It's something that uh, via a number of mechanisms that, you know, we probably should, don't need to go into here, uh, uh, perpetuates and encourages uh, activity. It rewards activity. It does not reward uh, popularity or, uh, you know, uh, being a great raconteur. It, it, it rewards, uh, there, there are ways in which a, you know, an individual participants uh, has their profile. Uh, there are ways in which uh, people who are uh, interviewing potential participants in their pursuance, if that's how they have it set up. You know, a, a pursuance can have, you know, it can be set that so that, such that uh, anyone can join if they'd like. I don't recommend it, but we do, you know, that is something, as a possibility. But uh, when you are about to work with someone or considering working with someone or considering joining a pursuance, you can see in most cases, unless it's uh, set for very private, you know, high-end secure work, you can see what stuff they've done in the past and you can see what, uh, ratings, what comments they've gotten from people that are verified to have worked with them. Uh, at the same time, and, and that's something we've had to think long and hard about, uh, like a lot of this, because we're always trying to to uh, find the right balance of transparency between individuals and security. Uh, and that's why so much of this is is up to the user. That's why like when you set up a pursuance, you can decide, you know, most of these pursuances are going to be doing pretty mundane, not that really dramatic, exciting stuff. They'll be doing, you know, the the hard work of fighting for open societies. Uh, and they're going to those pursuances are going to be these visible structures that you can see and you can see who is how it's connected and what kind of work is being done and how. 
And that makes it easier for, say, an NGO uh, that may be situated a block away, you know, on a San Francisco city block with another NGO, uh, but doesn't really have a great way to interface with that NGO and see exactly where the potential areas of, you know, congruent uh, alliance might be. Uh, it's going to it's going to facilitate the discovering of that information, the discovering of, oh, here's how here's their logistics program they have to move bikes to Africa. And, and here's what we have. So now here's a, here's an obvious area of congruence that we should uh, approach them about. It's going to help solve that problem. It's also going to, uh, you know, it's also going to, uh, you know, bring back uh, freedom of association in all senses, as in you're also free not to associate. Uh, and that's important. Uh, that's important for a number of reasons, uh, partly, partly due to the fact that we have lots of groups out there like the Green Party and Libertarians who, if they worked together, uh, could have helped solve a lot of these prison reform and drug reform problems a long time ago. But keep getting in fights over other things. Uh, so this is very much, uh, very much geared towards uh, promoting the uh, the, unif- the, the the united beliefs of its constituents, rather than allowing their differences to overwhelm those things. Uh, the other the other major aspect of this I should note is that you mentioned the term reinventing the wheel earlier. Uh, in, in the case of the journalist setting up pursuance, there's a central data library. We'll, we'll think of a catch your name for it later, but. Uh, Anytime anyone creates a pursuance or creates a structure of pursuance or any kind of you know, element of pursuance, they can make a copy of it and submit it to the central data library and say, yes, this structure, this workflow, uh, this works really very well for this kind, of, this kind of task. And you'll annotate it and say exactly, you know, here's how it was set up. Here's what you can see what it looks like. Here's how this worked and why. Here were some problems that may have arisen, blah, blah, and submit it. And uh, so anyone coming into the pursuance system. Uh, who may be great at what they do, but don't want to, don't have the capacity or don't have the interest in studying human networks, uh, will have these huge number of templates they can search through by keyword or whatever uh, that do things similar to what they want to do. Now, they can take that, use it, and perhaps refine it, modify it, improve upon it. And then they can take a copy of that and put it back in the library. And so this is a system that evolves on several different fronts, and that's one of them. I know we're not going to get into all of the nitty gritty here and we're rapidly running out of time, but I do want to just uh, follow up on something else that I think is, is, is really noteworthy here. And it has to do with the, with the word, I, I think you've used it in the conversation so far, but I know that you've used it in other contexts and that's accountability. Um, and you've mentioned these procedural agreements that are made among the members of a pursuance. And I guess I'm, I'm, I'd like to understand a little bit more in a little bit more detail, what exactly that looks like? What are these agreements and exactly how do they provide a measure of accountability in the pursuance world? Well, that's that's one of the things that we that's another big questions we've had. And we've gotten a lot of questions about, you know, how are you going to prevent people from misusing this or how are you going to uh, you know facilitate this or should you guys be overseeing everything? And the answer is that we are going to take uh, just like with any medium, the telephone, uh, Facebook, you know, email, uh we actually have less to answer for in, in, in so much as how these things will be used because, again, we are making taking steps to ensure that a certain kind of person is using it to begin with and that a certain kind of person will end up populating it further because those people that we seed it with, so to speak, uh, will be choosing the next people and, and so forth. And so obviously as that process continues, uh, you're going to increasingly be subject to people coming in who don't belong there, but they're going to find it very difficult to uh, – actually join a pursuance or to recruit for their own because they will be sort of out of step with the general ideology of the 
existing members who, who themselves have already set up these complicated pursuances. Um, beyond that, so it's, it's an end-to-end encrypted platform, which is very important, uh, particularly for some of our, our constituents, you know, people, reformers in the Arab world, for instance, some of whom we've met with at some of the conferences we've attended in the last uh, year or so. Uh, we were at RightsCon in Toronto, uh, uh, Hope uh, in New York a couple weeks back. Uh, these people, these are people who are now, some of them are using Facebook still, just like they did in Tunisia. Uh, they're using Facebook by necessity because they have to make the choice every day between, am I going to speak securely with a few people I know over Signal or somewhat less securely over Slack or not securely, securely at all via Facebook? Because uh, if they use Facebook, they do have the ability to, to uh recruit large numbers of people and get their message out but they you know they, they increase they they face increasing security concerns uh in in life and death situations so every all of this is very customizable and uh so by necessity with the internet encryption and the zero knowledge platforms that we have written into this you know that, that don't retain information and can't be subpoenaed or acquired by a government uh by by making it like that it means that we also cannot control how it's used. But that's, again, that's very similar with, say, the internet itself. Uh, but again, since we have, you know, made it non-content neutral and, and, and you know, since we are seeding this, this world, essentially, uh, like an early god who then steps, steps back, uh, we're, we're pointing in a certain direction, a direction that we can, we can, uh, that we can expect. Uh, we, we can generally guarantee that the great majority of what happens with this will be things that should happen. Uh, and so you always, so you always encounter risks and you always, you always encounter these, these questions that Facebook and Twitter are now answering about, you know, what is their responsibility, uh, in creating a platform and letting people use it. Um, we avoid those by, by reminding everyone that we are here to create an open source, uh, platform, uh, you know, for a constituency and that we do not feel ourselves to be, uh, you know, we are not capable, uh, of overseeing it in some omniscient way. And if we did that, we would be in danger of becoming, uh, down the line, something akin to the same things we're fighting. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think the, the, the takeaway from all of this is that Barrett Brown considers himself a god. Absolutely. But a god, but a god that puts things in motion, you know, and then becomes absent, like an absent father. So like, like actual god. Yeah, like, like a deadbeat dad. <laughs> okay. Um, well, we're pretty much out of time, but I want to just give you a chance. Uh, tell people, where do they go to find more information? I mean, obviously, I've given out the website. Is there any other materials, resources, or information that you think people need to know about Pursuance, about your work, uh, anything else that you want to leave the listeners uh, with? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at BarrettBrown underscore, and uh, I tend to link to a lot of the, the articles and the video presentations and the, and the talks and speeches we've given about Pursuance and various aspects of it. There's going to be a lot more of that coming soon because we, you know, this is something that's so hard to explain that you know we have to give it a number of tries, uh, and we're still refining that. Uh, you can Google pursuance, or you know, and, and uh, with different keyword combinations to find out about you know how pursuance can be used for journalists, how it can be used for NGOs. There's a lot of written materials out there. There's some articles by other parties uh, with with their take on on how it should be used and how it will evolve. Uh, there's a lot of video presentations that we've given at conferences on YouTube, and uh, 
and that's that's basically the best the best way to approach it. Project the, the pursuancproject.org website has a lot of links to these same articles and things, so that's a good place to start. Excellent, uh, Barrett. Thank you so much for all the work that you're doing for for pursuance and for all of the work that you've done, and of course for the tremendous sacrifice that you made, which I I, I think really does need to be uh, people do need to be reminded of that. I mean, you made about the biggest sacrifice that a person could make for the cause uh, that you're dedicated to, and I think that is noteworthy, and I think that that's something to, um, you know, to, to champion. So thank you for all that work. Thank you for pursuance and thanks for coming on the show. Listeners, thank you as always for the continued support and I'll speak to you again.